It's not every day you come across someone who went from gangbanger to guru. Yeah, you heard me right. But that's the journey that my guy Ryan Blair went through. He knows a thing or two about adversity, course correcting, and ascending through obstacles, all right? I had Ryan on at the program to talk everything from awakening to business to success consciousness. And man, he absolutely killed this topic or these topics and dropped so many bombs in today's episode. I am almost still in awe a couple of days after basking in the energy of this conversation. Ryan is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's a serial entrepreneur. Like I said, he went from gang member to businessman where he generated over $2 billion in company sales. After decades of building successful companies, Ryan began his latest company called AlterCall, which uplifts and helps other entrepreneurs to scale their companies using spiritual modalities. He's the former CEO of Visalis, which is known for the Body by V 90-Day Challenge. And in 2012, he sold that company for $792 million. So Ryan knows what he's talking about. He's also the author of the book, Nothing to Lose and Everything to Gain. So we're going to kind of get into all of it in this episode. Boy, I just, I can't emphasize enough how uplifting and really invigorating it was to get a chance to sit down with such an accomplished spiritual and business mind as Ryan Blair. So without further ado, we're going to get right into this conversation Make sure that you listen all the way through, guys. There's so much value jam-packed inside of the next 45 minutes or so, and you're really going to love this talk. So without further ado, here is the Ryan Blair. Ryan, you have such an extensive uh, history and so much experience in entrepreneurship, getting busy in the game well before the age of 21. When you think back on those early days, man, what, what are some of the the biggest uh, takeaways or learnings that that come to the forefront for you? Yeah, well, you know, I've been doing this now for 25 years as an entrepreneur and taking risk and a full-time entrepreneur at that. So, you know, I had a job as an engineer and I was in management and got promoted to management very early on. And I got to observe a fast growing company, a culture that was very intelligent. And, you know, we made a lot of money. And as a result of that, I then decided that I was going to do it on my own and venture off into entrepreneurship. And, you know, the key things that I could share with an audience is, you know, once you go pro, you have to play at a professional level. You have to constantly raise your standards. You have to surround yourself with mentors. You have to be reading and, and skilling up every single day. And so I went pro, meaning I left my job. I had a mortgage. I had a car payment. I, you know, I had a lot of ego in the fact that I was making about 100000 a year and I had a title of vice president at a young age, and then I, you know, went pro, and I've been humbled every step of the way. <laughs> right. What What was the most humbling uh, realization or experience that you had in the come up? Well, you know, I I think that humbling is a part of the process of entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, entrepreneurs have to be humble. We get yes. humbled every day. Every time someone quits on us, every time someone rejects us, says no. Every time, you know, we have the best intentions and, you know, and, and they fall apart, we get humbled. And so entrepreneurship is a, it's a humbling profession. And so there's, there's countless times where I've been humbled. And I think the secret to not being humbled is to keep a check, healthy check on your ego. Yeah, exactly. That's so critical. And we're humans, right? So we inherently have our um, biases and ego is a part of the human experience. Um, but you have to look at business in a non-emotional way, especially when making key decisions. And I've always said you can't make long-term decisions with a short-term um, emotional mindset. It just doesn't work. And I had to learn that experience um, personally. So that's, that's a big point that uh, I think a lot of people really need to understand. Yeah, you know, when we have a challenge, we want to detach from the emotionality of that challenge so that we can see it clearly. If we get tangled up in it, we don't see it clearly. And we will often see a false reality. We'll think yeah. that we're gonna die or we don't have enough time or we're not gonna win or we're not gonna get through this. And you know, these thoughts arise at all levels of entrepreneurship. I have 
I have a friend that runs a multi-billion dollar company that's going through a very difficult time right now because of the market changes in the real estate industry in particular. And you know, and there are days where he's feeling the same exact thoughts that, you know, I, I feel and that, you know, you feel when you have a 10 person company or a one person company, there are days where he's having the same exact thoughts. You know, he just has the experience and, you know, the wisdom, uh, you know, of having experienced a number of adversities throughout his career to get through it. And so every time a challenge comes your way or adversity comes your way, you know, we should greet it. We should see it as a friend. We should dance with it mm -hmm. and we should learn from it. And as a result of those learnings, we create wisdom and that wisdom is our most valuable asset. Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm curious, what is your decision-making process like? So what is the steps or the process that you engage in when making a really important business decision? When I, I evaluate the options that I have, yeah. you know, when oftentimes we overlook all of our options, you know, we only think, oh my gosh, if I don't raise the sales revenue by X amount, you know, then I'm out of business. Like, well, there's other options we could, you know, we could cut expenses, we could mm -hmm. raise some capital, you know, there's friends and family, there's all kinds of different ways that we could solve this problem. And when we get in a state space of fear and scarcity, we retract and we don't evaluate the options, you know, accordingly. So yeah. I evaluate the options and then I run one play at a time. I don't try to run two plays and I put everything I got behind the play. And if the play fails, I see it as a spiritual reason, like that wasn't the play. And then I got to run the next play. And I use a sports analogy because it's, you know, if, if you know, the clock is running down and you have no choice but to score, you know, to win, then you only have one play at a time that's going to get you there. And you put everything you can behind the play. And if the play doesn't work, then you put everything you can behind the next play. And, you know, eventually you, you try this enough times and you'll find plays that work and you'll run those plays effectively. And, you know, you, you'll get to a result. You've had such a storied career up to this point in your life, and you still have so much so far to go, right? Um, but one thing that sticks out is having built the fastest growing company on the NYSE at an early stage in your career. I'm curious how that came about and what was the genesis of the idea for that company when you were in the stages of building it? We, we got uh, lucky in that we went through a tremendous adversity and the 2008 recession had knocked us down and, and it was a very difficult time. You know, our, our business had just been sold in a multi-year earnout, and uh, we had sold August of 2008 and then mm -hmm. the recession, the great recession hits in September. So yeah. our timing was, you know, very, very favorable. However, our two and a half million dollar a month business went down to $600,000 a month. Um, the public company that bought us wrote us off. They just basically hated us. They tried to fire me. Um, they were, you know, they were not good uh, acquire acquisition partners. And myself and my co-founders decided that we were going to stick with the fight and we were going to change the business. We changed our messaging first and foremost to meet the new consumer. So we were mm -hmm. a luxury uh, goods business. We were selling anti-aging and luxury, okay. and we shifted to selling meal replacement and to save money in the grocery store line. So our messaging now aligned with the new consumer because the old consumer didn't care about saving money in the grocery store line because they had rising, uh, you know, their, their homes were appreciating, their equity was appreciating, their credit card facilities were appreciating. Who cared about an extra hundred bucks, you know, savings a month or 200 bucks savings a month? The mm -hmm. new consumer cared about saving money. And so we put our incentives and our messaging together. And that would be number two is one was messaging, two was incentives. Once we got those aligned, then our customer acquisition engine really started to tune up. And then we did some other incentives where if customers referred us three additional customers, we had a thing called the Body by Vi 90 Day Challenge. And if you brought three customers on the challenge with you, we gave you your product for free, which further aligned with consumers' desire to save money. So, you know, people will go out there, get three people to join them on their challenge and get their product for free. And this also aligned with the fact that when you do a challenge with friends, you're more likely to be successful. And it's good to work out with friends and it's good to you know, work out with family and engage your whole family in something that's going to better them. And so um, that was uh, you know, aligning incentives, 
um, messaging. And then the third part was, you know, we had some good timing in terms of, we got this message out on social media before the world had figured out how to use social media commercially. We were the first people to start marketing a challenge on social media. Okay. And now you've seen the ice bucket challenge and a million challenges and there's entire industries that teach you how to appropriately run challenges on social media. And we were the first to do that. So, you know, that we were disseminating the message and distributing the message in a very, very viral way. And that initiative took off. We went from um, uh, six million, six hundred thousand dollars a year in sale, or six hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, to sixty-five million a month in a, about twenty-four months' time. And we generate a significant sum of profit, and the earnout that we were a part of uh, ended up, you know, being a significant earnout. That we end up, the final price tag they paid for the stock was like seven hundred ninety-two million dollars. Wow! Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned kind of kind of setting setting the trend in a way on social media with with the the um, promotional work that you guys did there. Was there anything else that you can um, attribute that growth spike to around the the time that re things really started to take off? Yes, we we had we created a new economic model and we went and evaluated the entire business of business model. And we broke it down. We broke down everything and we put the emphasis on who we wanted to serve and got really focused on who is our ideal customer? How are we going to serve them and put all of our energy on that and the incentives and the messaging and the programs and the marketing and the sales and um, the product development and all of that was then focused on this new individual, you know, this new individual that we were focused on. So we we broke down the business model and re-engineered it. We also crafted some principles during this time that we were gonna we we're gonna live by. And as opposed to, you know, uh, hanging up, uh, you know, hanging it up and retiring or running or hiding, we chose to fight. And you have a choice in these types of situations. You have a fight or flight choice. And the natural instinct is going to be flight. You know, that's it. And sometimes flight is an appropriate strategy if you know, if you're gonna die or you know, or, or you can't win the fight no matter what. Sometimes flight is, but in this particular case, we believed we could win the fight and we chose to fight. And as a result of that, you know, we were able to, you know, create the most successful company uh, coming out of the, the recession, certainly in our industry. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and you know, and I learned, uh, I've learned a ton since then, and I've learned a ton through those uh, experiences that now, you know, uh, comprise the wisdom that I have to offer the world. Now, I tell people, not only do I have 25 years of experience, but I've experimented with about $2 billion uh, in revenue throughout my entrepreneurial career. And, you know, I've, yeah, I've, we kept a couple hundred million of that, uh, but we deployed the rest of it in a series of experiments. Some worked, some didn't, some yeah. were programmatic, some were innovative. But, you know, when you have $2, $2 billion plus rolled through your hands, there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of wisdom and a lot of lessons that come from that. So I'm curious to that point, uh, after this sale, in terms of making those other investments and deploying capital into other um, other growth projects, what? how did you decide uh, what you wanted to pursue after that time? Did it just evolve naturally or did you have to work with a team to say, what other businesses are out there? What other um, experiments do I want to take this and inject it into to, to, to learn? Yeah, I you know, I made the mistake many uh, entrepreneurs make after they come into a large sum of money. And that mistake was that I thought I was going to become an investor or a venture capitalist because it looks easy. It looks like it's less intense. Right. It, you know, you, you hear about these huge rewards. Oh, this person bet on Uber, this person bet on Facebook, this person bet on Tesla, this yeah. person bet on this and yeah. it looks like they're doing quite, quite well. And so I like to just have a simple job where I spread around some money and I make billions of dollars. That sounds great. You know, I got a hundred million, let's spread it out. And 10 times return on that, I got a billion, 10 times return on that, I got 10 billion, 10 times return on that, I got a hundred billion, right? You know, simple math. That's what every entrepreneur uh, makes, many entrepreneurs I should make the mistake of. And I did make that mistake and I invested on a lot of bad projects. I wasted a lot of money. I got involved in things that I shouldn't have. Um, and then through 
those um, bad investments, I came to the realization that I'm the builder and I build things. You know, many entrepreneurs will tell you like their spirit animal. And I, they always love to say, I'm a lion or I'm a tiger. And I think that's great. Oh, you're a lion or you're a tiger, but lions and tigers don't build anything. You know, the animals that build, which yeah. is what an entrepreneur is, like they're more like the beaver or a bird that builds a nest, right? Mm -hmm. But like, we are animals that build. We are not animals that speculate. Now, some people are great at speculation. They're made for it. They're trained in it. They're skilled in it. They love it. They live for it. It fits their personality and it fits their experience and their intelligence quite well. And then other people are builders and us builders should not be speculators. Yeah, let, let's talk about that for a minute because I think to, to the point that you made, you know, you need to have the, the passion and the fire and the drive of a lion, but you need to actually apply that with the patience of a fucking turtle or a snail or something <laughs> and start to shift your mindset from short-term um, immediacy, instant gratification to one of long-term and really taking an investing um, perspective across the board if you want long-term success as an entrepreneur. That's what I've really been um, digging into myself the last year or so. I wanted what um, should take five or 10 or 15 years in five weeks yeah. um, once I, when I really started in, in this game. Um, how important is, is patience and, and just working the plan, planning the work? How important is that for you? Well, one, I love the expression, you know, plan the work, work the plan. I use it all the time with my team. So we're aligned there. But, uh, you know, I'm 45 years old now. And the wisdom that I have has come by, you know, by way of having some short-sighted uh, decision making and mistakes and errors and, and a lot of failure. Sure. Um, the, you know, when you think about anybody who has success, what Warren Buffett or anyone, the failure is much bigger than the size of their success. Mm. Right. So in order for Warren Buffett to wind up with a hundred billion dollars, he's had to make a trillion dollars worth of mistakes. Now the trillion dollars worth of mistakes isn't found in his balance sheet. Right. It's not found in the investments he did make. It's found in the investments he did make and he knew he should have made. It's found in, it's found in not taking action when you should have taken action. Like that's, you know, the amount of opportunity that he has said no to that resulted in, you know, in a, in a gain is far greater than the opportunity that he has said yes to. Mm -hmm. But he has learned to say no to even good opportunities that don't match his appetite and his profile. Uh, he doesn't have to swing at every pitch. He only has to swing at the pitches he likes. And that's something that we fail to realize as entrepreneurs and investors. It's like, even if it's a great opportunity, oh, Bitcoin, it's gonna make a ton of money. It's like, I don't need to swing at that pitch. Even if that pitch is gonna be a beautiful win, that's not my pitch. I don't know, I don't care to know about currencies and economies. It doesn't excite me. It's not what I wanna study. Like I'd, mother, I'd rather learn about real estate or I'd rather learn about something else, right? So we don't have to swing at every pitch that comes our way, even yeah. if it's a good one. Yeah. We only have to swing at the ones that match you know, our profile. So that's, that's one piece of advice that I'll share with you that I've learned as an entrepreneur and an investor. The other piece of advice that I'll share with you is it takes five years to build a foundation of a company. You will not build anything that is gonna withstand the test of time faster than five years. So it takes five years to build a foundation. Now, some people shortcut that because they pull teams together that they've worked with in the past. They pull capital together that they've worked with in the past. And then they build a company faster than a five-year you know, build because they have some foundation already in place that isn't on the surface. Like you can't see it when you go to their website, but there's some foundation. Like the two engineers worked at Stanford for 10 years and then started Google, right? That's foundation. So Google took off pretty quick. It still took five years to build their foundation, mm -hmm. but they already were pre-building that foundation before they even showed up with the idea to build Google. Right. So when you start a company from scratch, you should realize it's going to take five years to build the foundation. And then once you build a foundation, just like building a home, the home goes up very quickly. So knowing that, you know, I'm three years into my journey of building my latest venture, Alter Call. It's like I'm I'm um, the first three years were a pain. You know, they I went through COVID. I had you know, I had this person doing my technology that, you know, uh, had a lot of personal issues. I had this person doing this, that issues. You know, I had to develop my team, upgrade my team, recruit my team, 
figure out who I wanted to be, what we were going to become. All of this stuff is painful. And over time, as you're experimenting with messaging and sales approaches and marketing and software and technology and the other components of your business, eventually you get a foundation in place if you're crafting it intentionally. And then from there you build. And so I recommend to entrepreneurs that, you know, when you mentioned this, the question was long-term versus short-term, it's long, entrepreneurship is a long-term game. It takes 10 years to build anything that is meaningful. If you're good at it, it takes 10 years. And so be prepared to play for 10 years. I'm 45, I'm prepared to play this game called Alter Call till I'm 55 or 65, God willing. I have the energy to play till I'm 85 or 95, but mm -hmm. I know that I'm not getting uh, anywhere big uh, in under 10 years. And to piggyback off of that, that that's that's such a critical point, right? Don't don't start something you're not willing to put in a decade's worth of work towards. But on the flip side of that, I'm curious on your perspective on um, patience and waiting for the right thing. And I I'm not a fan of waiting because I think a lot of people um, they fall into stagnancy when they start looking and waiting and researching too long, right? And that can cascade into this long string of just doing nothing and yeah. manifesting and waiting for it. But talk about the importance of being willing to take action and to, to actually do as opposed to thinking about it and being, um, how, how, how important is that? Yeah, the, the universe will send you signs. Yeah, well. It will tell you when it's time to move and when it's time to wait. Yes. And you, you learn that because when you move and it doesn't work, it's because you were supposed to wait. And you'll know that because when you wait and it doesn't work, it's time to move. Um, so if you're really in tune with your body and your spirit, you're, and you're asking yourselves, like, yourself like, all right, you know, I, I feel like I'm being called to wait in this season. Yeah. Uh, is that the right thing? And then the universe sends you signs to take action. Like a friend recommends a book about action. And all of a sudden you're watching a YouTube video and, you know, and it's Tony Robbins talking about action. It's like the universe is sending you signs all the time as to, to help you determine what are the right next steps to take. Yes. So I've, you know, in my spiritual experience, I've learned to tune myself into that. Most people need to take action. Most people have too much information. They spend too much time accumulating information. They uh, have procrastination. They have distraction yes. and they're not built for action. Now that's the majority of people. So the prescription for them is action. Now there's another group of people that are overachievers and we tend to be too busy. And so the prescription for us is to make space and not to take as much action because being over busy means I'm gonna miss the signs and the opportunities that are coming my way. I'm not gonna be prepared to take advantage of it and the universe won't send you anything that you can't handle. So if I'm booked solid, you know, 18 appointments a day for the next nine months, there's nothing new coming in there. Like, you know, the universe can't show up with a gift at my front door. An old friend can't come bring a new opportunity to me because I'm too busy to talk to that old friend. Yeah. How long should somebody stay in something um, that maybe isn't working? Uh, but how, like how should how should people draw that distinction between waiting it out continuing to push not seeing results yet but also not quitting versus hey this thing actually isn't working i should just give this some space and give it some time and allow the universe to course correct me how, how can you kind of differentiate between those two yeah co correction is my favorite word so if it's not meant to be the correction, like if it's really not meant to be, the correction will be very big. Okay. It'll be a health correction. Um, it'll be something that course corrects you hardcore. Yeah. You know, the way I would describe it is, you know, you're driving this car and all of a sudden something takes your hands off the wheel and says, you know, I'm doing the driving right now because yeah. your soul is not going to wind up getting to the destination that it's supposed to get to if you continue on this course. Now that that that's a when when the big corrections show up, that means you know, uh, take your hand off the wheel and let the universe do the driving. Now, when small corrections are occurring, that tends to be shaping your competency and your character. And so, if we know that this is shaping my character, like for example, I got hit with a crisis. I felt a little negative. I was talking with my son about it. I'm like, you know, I want to let you know, Dad's going through some stress and. He's like, yeah, I could sense it. He's 13. And he's like, yeah, I could sense it. And 
And then, you know, I, I realized, okay, I, I have to demonstrate to my son how to go through these types of challenges without having it, you know, compromise my joy mm. and compromise my happiness. And so that was a small correction that this challenge came to teach me. It wasn't a big challenge. It's just a small one, but it was, I was making it bigger than I should have. And so that was a small correction, but these are the types of things that come our way each and every single day, no matter what level of, of entrepreneurship you're at. And yeah. each challenge and each adversity is designed to shape your character and your competency. But the universe will use closed doors and detours to try to shape your character and your competency. So if a door is closed, you should listen. Now, the big corrections you'll generally feel in your body. You'll get sick, you'll, you know, you'll start being overly tired, and you know, you'll you might have other related health complications. And when those things show up, you know, listen very deeply. Like, what's going on here? Because we should never allow our physical health to and our mental health to um, be deprioritized. Like our priority is our physical and mental and spiritual well-being. That's right. that's it. And then everything else we do comes after that. If what we're doing is co coming at a detriment to our physical, spiritual, and mental well-being, then we're you know heading you know to a course correction. Yeah, and for me, you know, I think making time to go into liminal thought and uh, meditation, and I think that's different for everybody. Like, you don't have to be sitting there literally meditating with music in order to meditate. Some people. The way they meditate best is taking a run and getting into that brainwave state that allows them to access certain levels of frequency and thought that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And for me, you know, there's there's several things, but making time to allow yourself to come out of the grind and to connect with your higher self and to open up and say, all right, what am I missing? And I think that's that's how people should approach that space and that time is like all right i'm open what am i missing what is the big opportunity here what is the right way that i that i should move here in this next chapter it's so critical and you might not you might not fail you might not die if you don't do that but if you don't you're gonna miss over time you're gonna miss opportunities they might be subtle at first but over the course of time it's so important to, to tap in like that yeah. um what have, what have you found in your experience well, I, you know, I, I went through a real dark night of the soul and I was willing to do anything and change anything about me in that time. I was like, God, whatever the hell I got to change, sign me up. Like, you know, I want to become the father I'm capable of becoming. I want to become the leader. And there was nothing off the table and there still is nothing off the table. Like I, there's, you know, there's no vices or anything that I'm unwilling to let go of. I'm willing to let go of whatever is necessary for me to ascend to my highest level of consciousness. Totally. And meditation was one of those items that came to me that I had to learn. And I've learned that it's a skill. And I'll break it down. There's really three ways to do it. There's, you can walk and meditate. You just have to pay attention to each footstep and the way it feels on your feet. And anytime your mind wanders, you go back to, ooh, that's a nice little rock. That's a nice little bump. Here's how my foot feels. And you could do it walking around and just putting your attention on each step that you take. You can do meditation where you tune your ears. You could tune your ears to the sound of birds, which is my favorite. Just saying, I'm going to go outside in the morning, in the evening. I'm just going to listen for the birds. I just want to hear you. Yeah. Five minutes. I get the chills just telling this. A minute, two minutes. And every time I have a thought arise, I'm just going to go back and say, what bird is singing to me right now? And I'm going to think about those birds, not about the garbage and the noise and all the other stuff going on in life. And that's the thought meditation. And then the other form of meditation would be uh, concentrating on your breathing. So you're just concentrating on the breath. I'm only going to think about my breath during this moment, you know, in, out, in the nose, out the nose, in the nose, out the nose. I'm tuning myself into my breath. And I'm just going to listen to my breath. And then the uh, last item is pure stillness and silence, which tends to be the hardest for people to do because we're living a, a society and a culture that makes a lot of noise and there's noise all around us. The radio's on, the TV's on, Facebook's on. And so we've uh, desensitized ourselves and de-skilled ourselves from becoming silent. But learning how to be silent is the highest form of meditation. It's the hardest form to get to where you shut down your thoughts, you shut down your mind and you go to stillness and silence. And that's the highest skill level you can get to. And 
then there's some that can do that for a long period of time. Like, you know, they can sit in stillness and silence for an hour or two hours or even weeks. And I've experimented with, you know, these, these tactics. The first step though, just go listen to the birds. You have to have a mental training regimen. If you're not actively working on your mental health, it is actively working against you. Because mm. your brain is growing and changing based on the environment all around. You can't control that. So you're being programmed and you have to take control of the programming. And when you do that and you become a practicing meditator, you actually get above your thoughts. They no longer control you. You observe them. When they arrive, you're like, what the hell did that come from? You know, some people believe in past lives go like, I, like, I have no idea why I had this stupid thought. Or another thought comes in and you're like, that's noise. Or another thought comes in, you're like, maybe I should call my sister. Another thought comes in, maybe I should reach out to an old friend. Maybe I should check in on somebody, right? So, you know, as the thoughts arise, you just start to observe them and yeah. you filter them and you delete the ones that, you know, are unnecessary and you have grace and humility and you laugh. You're like, what the hell am I thinking about right now? That's just ridiculous. There's no point in me having that thought. And the more that you do it, the more that when the thoughts arise that are fear-based or scarcity-based, you just observe them and you're like, I, I choose not to have a scarcity thought right now. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. You know, I appreciate, I appreciate professor, professor scarcity showing up here. No, thank you. You know, I appreciate Mr. Fear showing up. I'm not interested in fear today. Um, and the more that you detach from your thoughts emotionally, and you're just like, these are just things that are floating around in the air that my antenna is picking up, but I only want to uh, listen to the, the ones that are important to me the more that you can control your own mental health. Yeah, totally. The brain is a great filtration device and server, but it's a lousy master. That's one yeah. of my quotes. Yeah, the, the, it, it, it's just, it is what it is. It's a, it's a you know, it's, a, it's like if my heart's beating fast, I gotta slow down, right? Like, you know, I don't wanna, you know, have uh, my heart beating too fast. I wanna ground myself and calm myself and maybe take a hot bath. and. If my brain's racing too fast, I got to slow it down. And that's what meditation yeah. is. Um, in terms of like stress and anxiety management, like you said, obviously that's becoming more and more prevalent with the world that we live in and the work style that a lot of us are shifting into with being remote and every everyone is on all the time, 24 seven. Um, obviously we talked about meditation. Are there any other techniques I know you're big on breath work um, that you that you look to integrate on a daily or weekly basis. Yeah, there are. My favorite is a hot bath with salt in it. You know, I get some salt bath going and listen to classical music or worship music or, you know, maybe 60s classic or whatever, Pink Floyd, whatever I'm in the mood for. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm putting my phone down and I'm going to relax and, and, you know, and uh, recharge. The other things I like to do, I like to catch the sunrise. I like to catch the sunset. So yeah. I'll go hike up, catch the sunrise. That That's a powerful uh, thing for me. And what I share with people is there are things that drain your energy and then there are things that replenish it. There are things that bring you light and there's things that take your light. And we want to sequence throughout our day the things that add light, that fill up our cup with the things that drain our cup. And anytime we drain the cup, we want to fill it up some more. And if we don't get that sequence right, eventually we're serving from an empty cup all the time. And so the last thing you wanna do is wake up and start you know, diving into stressful related work. I wake up and I go into calm. I wake up and go into relaxation. I don't wake up and go into stress because I wanna enter my day calm and then build my energy to a peak. I don't wanna enter my day stressed and then be drained each step of the way. Right. right. Just doesn't like if you and you start your day with stress, you're going to be constantly infusing stress in all of the work you do. So I, I do everything I can to start my day calm. I'm probably out of 365 days a year. I probably get this right about 306, 300 times, maybe 65 of them. I'm like, I blew it today. I started it with stress. What was I thinking? The other thing is, you know, we need, as you mentioned with runners, we need to have a physical exercise that drains our energy. For me, that's boxing. And, you know, I love boxing or hiking, but a good boxing session where I go box for an hour, I'm depleted, I'm, I'm spent, you know, that's how I get that stress out of me. And we have to have something that depletes our energy 
I, I don't get it like if I'm just pumping iron. Now, some people can. It's not as exciting to me. I still do those exercises to maintain optimal fitness and productivity. But like I go box and I'm a different person afterward. Me too. Yeah, I've, I've been boxing for about five years and for the exact same <clears throat> reasons. You know, I think that it's actually really important that we each find at least one thing in our life that mimics life itself. And it could be an activity like working out, sports, tennis, boxing, but it could also be some type of a group project or a class or even a mastermind yeah. where you are purposely going into adversity because it's going to make you stronger and therefore better prepared to handle life. Um, can you talk about some of the adversity and the specific experiences that um, that you have have faced in your life and I guess how you overcame them? Oh, well, I got a long list of those. Um, I've lost uh, friends to suicide. Mm -hmm. I've lost friends to overdose and drug yeah. addiction recently dear friends i've lost family members to drugs and alcohol lost my mom and dad grandma and grandpa and wow. all of my you know immediate uh, closest family members of all transitioned i do have sisters and brothers that i'm very close to as well that god i'm, I'm so happy they're still alive um but they many of them went through some very hardships you know some deep hardships i too had struggled with substance related challenges in the past and self-medication mm. um so i've had some adversities i brought onto myself as well yeah. I've been arrested. I've been wrongly confused. I've been uh, accused of, of, um, of, you know, all kinds of things that weren't true. I have people that that will attack me publicly, assign uh, wrongful intention to me, accuse me of doing things that you know that aren't the truth, that aren't my true character and my true heart. Um, you know, I have bad reviews. I have people uh, doing everything they can to try to sabotage my growth and my success as a, a public figure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've been to jail. I've been to juvenile hall. I've uh, I've had to have treatment before. Um, I have been knocked out. I've had my teeth broken out. I've had concussions. I've broken my hand five times. I've been in a ton of different fights. Uh, I've contemplated my own uh, end of life. I've um, I've had anxiety. I've uh, you know I've had mental health related challenges, deep mental health related challenges as a result of, you know, a lot of these things that I have um, gone through. And, and so I am a, a, a uh, expert in the subject of adversity, whether it be self-imposed, macro adversity, adversity, society related adversity, culture related adversity, um, and micro adversity. I know adversity well, but what I know about adversity is this. We should actually celebrate people who have gone through adversity. Agreed. We, we should have them wear, much like we ask our generals to put, you know, every, uh, uh, you know, every battle that they've had is a medal, you know, and they're just decorated and they're all blinged out. Everybody who's gone through adversity should have, be all blinged out with their adversity. We shouldn't be in shame and grief yeah. and we shouldn't be, you know, guilty. It's like, no, I beat addiction. Do you know how hard yeah. beating addiction is? I beat the devil back in that front. I beat the devil back in mental health. I beat the devil back in physical health. I beat the devil back in a variety of different places that, that some people never, you know, never get out of. I got out of that. So we should celebrate those people who have fought and won adversity as the heroes of our society because they have the wisdom. Adversity holders are the wisdom holders and adversity turns into wisdom and it even turns into spiritual authority once you mm -hmm. conquer the adversity. So I can help people that have been through similar challenges as I have, because I have mastered those challenges. And you'd much rather talk to somebody who's been through it than talk to somebody who theoretically knows how to help you through it. Like, no, I, I want someone who's climbed this mountain. Mm -hmm. I wanna talk to the person who's climbed the mountain that I'm trying to climb. I don't wanna talk to someone, you know, who read a book about climbing a mountain and they tell me how to climb a mountain. Right. And I, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that that level of detail um, with your experience. It really speaks to, I think, a lot of not just your story, obviously, but a lot of people can connect to a lot of those themes, um, but may not be publicly or openly uh, discussing it or, or recognizing that they're there. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I'm curious on your awakening, man, because 
obviously, you know, I think about awakenings like snowflakes, right? Nobody's is the same. Um, for me, it was sudden. It was not gradual, but looking back, there was definitely build up to it that I didn't recognize was happening at the time. And the angle that mine actually took was oddly enough, kind of from like a paranormal um, afterlife type perspective, I started digging into those subjects and it really opened me up and helped to expand my consciousness where I started wanting to learn more about the multidimensional self and the nature of reality. And that one thing led to another, but for you, was it more gradual or was it just something happened and everything changed for you? Well, I think for all of us, there's a gradual force at work that we just don't see. Mm. And then, and then all of a sudden, some of us, it just hits us all at once, right? But there's, you know, when I look back at the pattern, I'd started the path of awakening in like 2014. Okay. Uh, and then 2017, I awakened because uh, I was a tough nut to crack, right? I didn't, yeah. I didn't get the message early on. And the awakening was, it was, um, it was real simple. My mom was on hospice mm -hmm. and she was making a rebound and we were like, wow, she's going to make it. And then a voice spoke to me clearly and said, go say goodbye to your mother. Mm -hmm. And I was like, like at first I denied it. What? Like, what's this voice? She said, go say goodbye to your mother. Like now it was almost like firm, a very firm voice. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to get in the car. And I, you know, she lived about 45 minutes away and I'm going to go drive and tell her. And she's like, what are you talking about? You know, it's going to be Thanksgiving. Like I'm planning on Thanksgiving. And I said, mom, I got a spiritual message to say goodbye to you. And I just want to let you know, I, you know, I love you. I confessed to her. I told her that, you know, there was a lot of things that I was, I was having challenges with drugs and, you know, playboy lifestyle promiscuity and that, you know, her son's going through hell and seeing her go through the traumatic pain that she had gone through as a result of, you know, she had a severe brain trauma as a result of alcohol, but she fell down a flight of stairs and was in a coma for two years. And then by the grace of God, she woke up and she had mm. about four more years of being severely handicapped. But, you know, we thought maybe she'll make it. And when uh, that voice spoke to me, I, I went to say goodbye to her and I, I had words with her and I, I went and saw her a couple more times and prayed with her. And, uh, and I told my family, a voice spoke to me and said, say goodbye to mom. And they were like, you're crazy. Like you've just lost your mind. And, um, and then on November the 2nd, which the anniversary is in a couple of days here, uh, I woke up to the news that she had passed in her sleep. Mm. And so then I get the chills just telling you this. Well, then I knew, I was like, holy shit, there's something different out there. Yeah. Now the day of her passing, things started happening in my life. I could feel her spirit. I could feel her presence. Doors would open and slam. Uh, weird old friends would get messages from my mom and be like, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I got a message and it would be exactly what I needed to hear. And then I started having her come to me in my sleep and my dreams. I could smell her perfume. I would wake up and I could smell like I smell her perfume. I could feel that there was a multidimensional aspect to this thing that we call life yeah. and that the soul does elevate to another destination. Yeah. And, it, and, and that was the beginning. I was like, okay, I know something that isn't like, I knew it in theory before and you know, I'd heard about this, but like now I had personal evidence that this is real, right. that the reality that I had thought was more of a theory was real. And that just blew my mind and then opened me up to want to understand how to communicate with this other dimension, how to be able to connect to my mom. And we had so much love that I wanted to talk to her. And so I was like, God, I'll change whatever I need to change. I'll purify myself so I can make a spiritual connection with my mother. And I can tell you, people might think I'm crazy for saying this, but my mother's never left you know, my side for one day since she elevated. She talks to me all the time. I get to hear her voice all the time. I have a new spiritual relationship with her, uh, different than the physical relationship. And yeah, I, I miss the hugs and I miss the physical relationship, but I you know, have this just peace in my heart knowing that I'm now in a spiritual relationship with her and I can call upon her anytime I need to. And I can have her presence anytime, uh, anytime uh, I call her name. Wow, I, I love that. It's really interesting to hear how how your story has evolved and having that close tie and that that parallelism with with her is is really beautiful. Um, switching gears a little bit, how do you feel like you're coming into consciousness or consciousness in general? How do you feel like that um, works together with capitalism and how how have you 
uh, woven those principles and those values of awakening into a business context. I was just in a room with a bunch of people that had sold their companies for like a hundred million plus. And they asked me to come give a speech. And I thought it's a very secular, non-conscious room. Everybody cared about their watches and their cars and their mansions. And, you know, and they all wanted to make more money and they all already had enough money, right? But they're in the room. I wasn't sure how well I would be received. And I came in and I explained to them that we are all aligned and that each and every single one of us knows that there is something about us that is untapped. There's untapped potential. And you get to the top of the mountain when it comes to money, you realize there are other mountains that don't involve money that you're going to need to climb one day. And I got to the top of the money mountain and then realized like this isn't all, if this is all there is to life, then it's not worth living. And I realized that there's a spiritual mountain and there's a mountain around your understanding of love and there's a mountain, a mountain around your understanding of self-control. And there's all kinds of mountains that we can climb in life that, you know, that aren't represented purely by money. And when I shared that message with the room, I watched as they all shifted. I told them like, look, we're all here to tap into our untapped potential. And some of you, that's, that's what's keeping you up at night is you know there's something more to life than just money. But yet, the only game that you know how to play in is money. You don't know how to play in the spiritual game. You don't know how to play in the relationship game. You don't know how to play in the family game. You don't know how to play in the health game and the nature game and the earth game. And there's a whole, there's a whole series of games all around you that if you learn to play in, as yeah. well as you've learned to play in the money game, you're yeah. going to have love and peace and joy and happiness and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness in your life. And when I shared that message with them, like literally you saw everybody in the room just basically say, I want what you have because I have peace. You know, I have a, I have a deep peace inside of me and the people that I know that are focused on the capitalistic pursuit, many of them don't have true peace. Right. And the spiritual pursuit will bring you peace. Yes, it will. Um, and it's, it's an important game. It's a game that you can't just quit once you start. You, uh, a mind exposed to new ideas or new dimensions cannot go back to old ones. I think that's an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote. That yeah, yeah. You, you. If you go backward, you suffer. You, you know, we we only have the free will to choose the light or the dark. That's it. And so the light is a harder path. The dark is easy. Go through a challenge. Go get some wine. That's an easy. That's an easy uh, decision go through a challenge and say, I'm not going to numb myself. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to feel this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask myself, who is this that's feeling this? Why am I feeling this? What, what about this is rattling my cage? What is real here? What do I need to change? What do I need to heal? What do I need to grow? Why do I, why did I call this end of my life? Right? You know, the dark is the easiest path to take. And when you take the path of the dark, you suffer. When you take the path of the light, you grow. And the more that you grow, the more that you heal, and the more that you heal, the more that you need to grow. And it's a process, it's not easy. But we only have the free will to choose the light or the dark, basically. Once you're on the spiritual path, you know, there's a tight leash on you. Yeah, definitely. And you become you become more, more fine-tuned, you become more spiritually mature, I think, as you work through the chapters of your life. And for me, looking back, you know, at some of the hardest moments that I didn't recognize as being beautiful at the time, I now view as just being absolutely exquisite and so so perfect perfectly imperfect because <clears throat> of the of the man that they've they've forced me to become and the the spirit that they've molded me into so yeah um, that's really important that's awesome yeah the the moments in our life i you know i look back and i go of course you know i needed to go to juvenile hall yeah right? and juvenile hall was where i learned to read the bible and where I learned to read the Bible out loud because I was in yeah. solitary confinement. They, I, they'd only give me one book, you know, and, and so I'm reading it out loud and I had a vision that I'd one day be a preacher. Hmm. And so I would never have had that vision in any other environment and certainly not the environment that I lived in because, you know, the house that I was in wasn't, you know, a biblical house, wasn't a spiritual house. And, and the, the team, the people I was hanging around weren't spiritual. And so I had to go there to get a Bible put in my hand so that I'd read it so that I'd have a vision for myself beyond it. Right. And I don't know if you're preaching per se, but you're definitely teaching the masses. And I've been following yeah. you for a while. And I, I, 
I've got to say the content that you that you share on a regular basis is is really high vibrational and um, really educational at the same time. So thank you for your work, man. Um, Ryan, was there anything that I didn't ask you today that you did want to make sure that we covered? No, just, you know, I, I love to be there for people during times of crisis. So, if, you know, if any of the audience is going through it right now, uh, they're having a difficult time or they feel like they have a deep untapped potential within them that they're not able to tap into. I'd love to be of service and love to help in any way I can. Yeah. And I, I, I also want to, uh, recognize the work you're doing over at altar call. Um, where can people go to, to learn more about that and to follow you? If you go to altercall.com, it's A-L-T-E-R-C-A-L-L.com, or you can catch me on Instagram and I'm at real Ryan Blair. If you DM me, we'll have a conversation. All right, guys, thank you for joining. This has been a great conversation with the Ryan Blair, and uh, we will see you next time on the Models of Masters. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Hey guys, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to rate, review, comment, and share. Everything helps. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things and hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you and that's it. I will see you in the next episode.